Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am one of your hosts, LD. Along for this ride with me, as always, is... TJ! Hi, TJ. How was your week? Oh, it's been all right. Good. Been a little, a little hectic, a little crazy, so I'm excited to be not hectic and crazy for a change. Well, um, <laughs> I don't know if this story is going to help you, because this person's life was incredibly hectic... Maybe I can get some tips. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think you want tips like this. No, oh, no, no, no. Because today we are actually going to be talking about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Ooh. Ooh. Woohoo. Rock and roll. Arguably one of the greatest guitarists in history. So we'll jump in by saying the sources that this mainly comes from is a documentary that I found on VH1's uh, Legends, the Stevie Ray Vaughan official site at uh, Stevie, well, it's srvofficial.com. So those are two of the major sources. And then, of course, Wikipedia. You're so good at citing your sources. I just expect people to trust me. <laughs> to trust oh, that I, I actually did some research like, and look it up. <laughs> I want to I want to give the people that actually did like the the up close research, you know, they're due because they have helped me out a lot. So Fair enough. So, you know, maybe you want to think about that. I don't know. I'm not I'm not here. I'm not your mother. I'll do better next time. I'm not here to I'm not here to rule your life. Well, to be fair, I've only done one episode so far and it was pretty much all sourced from Wikipedia, so Yep. And just backed up from other sources. <laughs> Fair. So, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that is his God-given name, was born on October 3rd, 1954. So, he's a Libra. Actually, just a couple days uh, from my birthday, which is September 29th. If you don't know my birthday by now. I know your birthday. When is your birthday? But I'm staring at you blankly because I don't know <laughs> when the astrological signs are other than Taurus. Uh, so wait, what's your birthday? April 26th. Okay. So I know the dates for Gemini. Vaguely. Vaguely. Uh, I definitely know Libra and I know Virgo and that's pretty much it. So if, uh, if they're, they have any other star sign, I don't know about astrology. I'm just like, he's the same astrology sign as me. Yay. Um, well, I know, I know Taurus and I know Aries because Aries comes right after Taurus and it's like five days behind my birthday. And I know I could never date a Scorpio. I mean, I couldn't date a Scorpio anyway because I'm married to a Gemini. But I know. I'm like, who are you trying to date, Lindley? <laughs> I don't want to date. The only person that I think uh, uh, I would ever uh, leave Mr. Hickey for would probably be Dr. Frankenfurter. Well, of course. <laughs> I don't know if I could leave... My fiance for Dr. Frankenfurter because he has better lingerie than I do. Fair. <laughs> but. And we'd always be trying to top, fight for top billing. <laughs> I'd just give it to him. Fair just enough. give it to him. He's got better legs than me. Longer legs, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, like I said, Stevie Ray was born on October 3rd, 1954, and raised in <laughs> Dallas, Texas. He's three years younger than his brother, Jimmy. And the reason why I bring up Jimmy is. You're going to see a, a gradual through line of uh, Stevie trying to kind of emulate Jimmy in a lot of senses. And then there's a big turn. And, and Jimmy seems to be one of the biggest influences on Stevie Ray's life. Sure. So so there you go. His father. Now, I don't have ages for these, so I can't imagine that it would be like the 16 and 43. Stevie's father was an asbestos worker, an occupation that involved rigorous manual effort. And so the family moved around frequently, and they lived in other states like Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma before they moved over to Dallas. And so he would end up living in up to 30 different towns. Wow. So that kind of existence for him kind of helped create his persona because he was incredibly lonely and isolated because he'd live somewhere for two weeks, two days. He would go to school and he wouldn't he wouldn't have the time to make friends. He wouldn't have the time to like get to know anybody. And so he was a sweet and shy but really insecure kid who never wanted to be alone while his brother took more after his uh, father and he would be like loud and cocky and confident. And his first exposure to music was to watch his mom and dad dance to country and western music. Oh, that's, that's really sweet though. So that's how they would relax would be They'd sit down and they'd watch their mom and their dad dance. Uh, it's too bad that his dad seemed to be like a raging alcoholic. Oh. 
Yeah. So in 1960, uh, when Vaughn was six years old, he started stealing his dad's drinks and he was drawn in by its effects. He actually started making his own drinks and that kind of resulted in an alcohol dependency. And he explained, that's when I first started stealing daddy's drinks. Or when my parents were gone, I'd find the bottle and make myself one. And he thought it was cool. And he thought the kids down the street would uh, think that he was cool. And that's where it started. And he was kind of dependent on it ever since. So how old is is he at this point? Six. Six? Six. Holy moly. Yeah. Six years old and and can't make it through the day without some Jim Beam. It's got to be a... I mean, I had a... When I was six, I was... I mean, when I was six, I probably would have hit the bottle too. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) At age 12, a family friend gave Jimmy uh, his first guitar. And not long after that, Stevie got his own, which was a plastic, like one of those toy... Guitars with, like, the three strings on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, just, like, the plastic one. It had, like, cowboys on it and stuff like that. Like so, a ukulele type of one? Or no, like I think a, it was, like, uh, I think it was just, just like, like a small guitar. Like a, like a, like a Fisher-Price okay. kind of baby guitar. Like, okay. a, like, like think of something that, like, a, a toddler could just strum and make that noise with. That a six-year-old with. alcoholic could <laughs> strum and make music with. So Stevie actually took, even though it was, like, a toy guitar, he took playing of the guitar really, really seriously. And so Jimmy would leave his guitar, you know, he'd like go sit the guitar down and go to school or go play or something, and Stevie would steal his guitar and play it. He's like, screw this baby guitar, I want the real thing. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so he kind of started teaching himself how to play the guitar. Stevie and Jimmy didn't really have any interest in um, taking lessons to learn the instruments. So they they took to being self-taught on the instrument. And so they would play a rock album. So they they would start playing these rock albums like Clapton and Jeff Buckley and Jimmy Page. And they found themselves actually more drawn to the blues. Their godfathers were kind of Albert King and Otis Rush and Buddy Guy and B.B. King kind of served as like their muses their inspirations so they would they would not bad idols and inspirations at all not at all during this time music was really kind of an escape for the boys because their father really struggled with alcohol abuse and they he would terrorize the family years later steve would finally admit that he had been victimized by his father oh which is so sad yeah. In 1963, he acquired his very first electric guitar, a Gibson ES-125T, as a hand-me-down from Jimmy. So, again, he's kind of following in his brother's right. footsteps again. In 1966, he was playing in garage bands called The Cast of a Thousand. And in September 1970, Vaughn made his first studio recording with the band, which included uh, an actor, Stephen Tobolowsky. And they recorded two songs, Red, White, and Blue. And I heard a voice last night for a compilation album, A New High, that featured various teenage bands from Dallas. So at age 12, he was already... Yeah, so he's like, what now, between the ages of 12 and 15? So he's already six years deep in being an alcoholic. But, I mean, the same thing happened with Drew Barrymore. Like, they were giving her cocaine when she was eight. You know, there's... I know, that's so crazy. Stop giving kids drugs and alcohol. Yeah. When he was 14, he joined a band called the Southern Distributor. I don't know if that's, like, on a car. Maybe. Maybe? I don't know. He learned the Yarbirds' Jeff Boogie and played the song at the audition. And Mike Steinbeck, the group's drummer, commented, the kid was 14. And we auditioned him on Jeff's Boogie. Really, it's a really fast instrumental guitar, and he played it note for note. And all the band did mainly pop covers. At 14, kind of voiced his opinion that he really, really wanted them to do some blues music. And then uh, later that year, bassist Tommy Shannon, who he would, I think, work with till the day he died, walked into a Dallas club and heard Vaughn play the guitar, and he was fascinated by them. And he described it as incredible even then so at 14 he was incredible and so shannon actually borrowed a bass guitar and the two jammed and with a few years they began to perform together in a band called cracker jack so they both got into this band called cracker jack uh-huh. but stevie actually quit that band when the lead singer was like hey guys we should wear makeup and stevie was like i'm out <laughs> it's like no thanks <laughs> which is like 70s is like getting it's not quite to the glam rock era yet like it's not we're still like, they know that kiss would blow up <laughs> and think about it queen did it david bowie did it like all these yeah. great names like like if cracker jack had waited like two years then maybe it would have been a thing but i don't know if if stevie would have ever gone for it i don't think he's probably I not I don't, I don't think he's that kind of guy um so also stevie ray vaughn was a part of a lot of bands. And so I'm going to kind of cover that really quick because 
it seems like up until the point where he he got into double trouble and things like that, like it was it was just this parade of just a lot of different bands. How many bands was he in? Like seventeen. <laughs> And I'm going to name them and every single one of their members and where all their members came from. They better be in alphabetical order. <clears throat> it will be. By band. But Is it be, really? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, wow, the okay. The quickest way to lose all of our <laughs> listeners is just to be as boring as possible. So in 1970, Vaughn joined a band called The Liberation, which was a nine-piece group and uh, with a horn section. Wow. And having spent the month... Briefly playing brass with Jimmy in a band called Texas Storm, he had originally auditioned as the bassist, uh, but impressed by Vaughn's guitar playing, Scott Faye, the group's original guitarist, modestly became the bassist. So he like, this kid's too good, I'll just be the bassist, let him play the guitar. Wow. So. <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, that the established musician is already like, nope, I'll just step aside. Yeah. You do your thing. And, and I don't know how old... Uh, Scott was, but I mean, could you imagine being like even like twenty five, and <laughs> here's this kid who's who's not even old enough to drive. That's already a better <laughs> guitar player. Where you're just like, I'm bowing to this kid. It's like, cool. I'm out. <laughs> so he attended Justin F. Kimball High School during the seventies, but his late night gigs contributed to the neglect of his studies, including music theory, and he would often sleep through classes. His career pursuits uh, proved to be a disappointment to many of the administrators, but he was also encouraged by many people, including his art teacher, to strive for a career in the arts, and in his sophomore year, he attended uh, evening classes for an experimental art at Southern Methodist University, but left when it conflicted with rehearsals. Vaughn later spoke of his dislike of the school and stated that he had received daily notes from the principal about his grooming. So, by age 17, he actually dropped out of high school to pursue his musical career. Stay in school, kids. Yeah. So, he actually took a job, uh, like a, a burgers and fry joint somewhere. And he was asked to take out the garbage one night. And when he did, he had to lean over because the dumpster was so high. He had to lean over to get the bag in. And he fell in head first. Whoops. And he was covered in grease from, like, his chest up. Oh, no. Which is just... Gross. So gross. So, like, he quit. So that. gross. So he quit. <laughs> he quit that. Stevie's musical mentality was that if he was going to sing the blues, he needed to live the life of a blues player. So he became used to drugs and alcohol, and he would carry on this for most of his life. While Vaughn asserted that he first experimented with the effects of cocaine when a doctor prescribed him a liquid solution of the stimulant as a nasal spray. Remember when they used to do that? I mean, I don't personally remember no. when they used to do that, <laughs> but like they would give you, they did that? Here's liquid cocaine to just squirt up your nose. Yeah, no, I, I do not know anything about that whatsoever. Well, I mean, they would. They Maybe put, I led a much more sheltered life than I realized, LD. <laughs> well, a lot of the illicit drugs came out of what was supposed to be. You That's know, true. Like, like what uh, was supposed to be medicinal. Well, was it ecstasy was supposed to be, it, it helped therapy. It, ecstasy helped in the therapy of couples that were trying to open up after they found out that one of their partners had cancer. So they were using it like that. Oh, the earliest Vaughn is known to have knowingly ingested drugs was actually in 1975 while performing with the Cobras. So I think he's 17 or 18 at that point. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. What year was he born again? In 54. So in 75, so he's 21. Oh, okay. I mean, just because he's 21 doesn't mean it's okay for him to do drugs. Well, no, it's <laughs> drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. Stay okay. away from drugs. Stay away, uh, yeah, stay away from drugs. So he doesn't was, matter how old you are. <laughs> yeah, so he ingested. But he is twenty one at this point. So yeah. at least he's not six. Yeah, yeah, would have been a shame. If at he least he's not six anymore. Six. <laughs> so he ingested it in nineteen seventy five when he was performing with the Cobras, which is yet another band. Blackbird moved to Austin after a few more stints, and I think Blackbird was uh, another band that he was with. But for some reason, my notes are kind of funky. So please forgive me for that timeline. I'm not exactly certain. But they moved to Austin after a few more stints in various bands. Vaughn actually joined Paul Ray and the Cobras in 75. So Blackbird, he belonged to Blackbird before the Cobras, making that like the sixth band he's been in. And he's barely into his 20s. The Cobras were in Austin for the year of 1976. For the next two and a half years, he earned a living performing weekly at a popular venue in town. The Soap Creek Saloon, which I wonder if that's still opened, and ultimately the newly opened 
and Tones, which is widely known as the home of the blues. And in late 1976, he recorded a single with them, Other Days, as the A-side, and Texas Clover as the B-side. And I think those are still available for purchase, so go out and get those. Playing guitar on both the tracks, the single was released on February 7th, 1977, and in March, the readers of the Austin Sun voted them as Band of the Year. In addition to playing with the Cobras, Vaughn jammed with many of his influences, such as uh, at Anton's, uh, including Buddy Guy, Jimmy Rogers, Lightning Hopkins, and Albert King. And remember, Albert King was one of his like major influences growing up with Jimmy because he would listen to right. That would be like one of his godfathers in his eyes. It's a big moment for him to be able to play with him. Yeah, and 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 think he's like this young kid. Who is this huge talent who's finally getting to meet one of his, his heroes? That's like a huge thing. After paying his dues as a style man, uh, Stevie actually formed the Triple Threat Review in 1977. It featured bassist W.C. Clark and vocalist Luann Barton, who apparently was just... Uh, I heard her vocals on the VH1 special, and she could shred. She's just got nice. a blowout voice. Uh, in the mid-1970s, they performed at the, the Adolphalus Hotel in downtown Dallas, where ZZ Top had asked them to perform. And, oh, right on. Yeah. <laughs> so during Liberation's break, Vaughn uh, jammed with ZZ Top on the nightcap song Thunderbird. Scott later described the performance. They tore down the house. It was awesome. It was one of those magical evenings. Stevie fit in like a glove on a hand. Stevie was so devoted to playing that sometimes he would play till, oh, God, when I heard this, I almost, I lost it. I was like, oh, God. Stevie would shred his hand he'd be playing so hard that he would actually shred his hand ow oh oh no way it gets better he would tear off the calluses they would fall off he's playing so hard that the calluses would actually fall off his hand and he would grab super glue and glue them back onto his hand and keep playing ew in 1978 clark left to form his own group so wc clark actually left the band and vaughn renamed the group the band double trouble Taking it from the title of an Otis Rush song. I remember Otis Rush was one of his, like, big influences, too. Right. Following the recruitment of bassist uh, Jackie Newhouse, Pharaoh quit in July and was briefly replaced by Jack Moore, who had moved from Texas or moved to, to, to Texas from Boston. And he performed with the band for about two months. Uh, Vaughn began looking for a drummer, and soon he met Chris Layton. And I have a really sad story later on about Chris Layton and you see actually a lot of Chris Layton in the special and he just seems like an all-around good guy you know like somebody you could have a beer with nice in early October 1978 Vaughn and Double Trouble earned a frequent residency performing at one of Austin's most popular night spots the Rome Inn and so this was probably like one of the 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 places that would kind of you know help Stevie make his mark on music Okay. And, it was, and, and, and it's a very popular place, so a lot of people are coming in and hearing his music, so he's getting name recognition at this point. But 1978 was a busy year for Stevie. You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Vaughn married Lenora Linny Bailey in 1979 after meeting her for the first time at one of his Nightcrawler performances at uh, La Cucaracha, Austin. And they married at the Rome Inn between his sets. Okay, but that's kind of that's kind of rock and roll. That's kind. It's kind of rock and roll. It, you know what I want to say? <laughs> at least she's not sixteen. Well, that too. Wait, is she? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Well, then at least she's not sixteen. Yeah. Well, they made their wedding rings out of like some wire that was hanging around the place. Okay, that's incredibly rock and roll. Yeah. On December 5th, 1979, while Vaughn was in a dressing room before his performance in Houston, off-duty police officer arrested him after he witnessed his usage of cocaine near an open window. Did you say December 25th? December 5th. Oh. Not on Christmas. I was going to say, what? He got arrested on Christmas for doing blow? (laughs) Nope. Nope. This is 20 (laughs) days before. So he was uh, formally charged with cocaine possession and subsequently released on $1,000 bail. Double Trouble was the opening act for Muddy Waters, who said about Vaughn's substance abuse, See, Stevie could perhaps be the greatest guitar player that ever lived, but he won't live to get to be 40 years old if he doesn't leave that white powder alone. The following year, he was required to return on January 16th and February 29th for court appearances. 
Uh, during that final court date on April 17, 1980, Vaughn was sentenced with two years probation and was prohibited from leaving Texas, along with the stipulation of entering treatment for drug abuse. He was required to avoid persons or places of known disreputability or harmful character. That's like all... That's everywhere that's you gig. Everywhere you go. <laughs> your job is in a bar. Half, Yeah, half of your gigs are going to be in some seedy dive. Yeah. So... I, that's... Uh, I mean... Okay. He refused to reply. So clearly that did not happen. No. He, uh, he refused to comply with both of the orders. Well, yeah. <laughs> a lawyer has hired his probation officer, had the sentence... Revised to allow him to work outside of the state. The incident later caused him to refuse maid service while staying in hotels during concert tours. And I'm guessing that so the maid doesn't find the drugs and report it to hotel security. Stevie's still working with Double Trouble. He's been playing really good gigs. You know, he's he's still, still using drugs and alcohol. But in uh, 1982, the band played the Montreal Jazz Festival. And this is a huge deal. Have you ever heard of this? Yes. Yeah. They, Only a couple times. Yeah. It's just a little, like, shindig. Yeah. So when the band played, they were actually the first unsigned band to do so. And people started booing them. Really? Yeah. People started to boo. But here's the thing. The crowd might not have liked it, but they did catch someone's attention. And that guy was David Bowie. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't even have words. David Bowie is just... David, David Bowie just saw something in he's a Stevie. Whole other, yeah. He's a whole other... Well, he's a whole other episode of this podcast. Oh, yeah. I can't yeah. wait to do that episode. So so he caught the attention of David Bowie and Jackson Brown, so two major players in music at the time. And Bowie asked Stevie to play the guitar on the next album, Let's Dance. And it became a best sell, the best-selling, so Let's Dance. It became the best-selling album of his career and despite the success of this, so so if you listen to Let's Dance, the guitar that you hear... that like, I'm going to have to yeah. listen a lot closer next time. That's Stevie. Because I would never have guessed that that was Stevie Well, with some from what I know of his style. was. Oh God. I guess I wouldn't have guessed that that was Stevie playing the guitar on that track, so I'll have to listen again and, and listen closer. It seems like Stevie kind of conformed to what Bowie's sound was at the time. And despite the success of that album, Stevie actually declined to join David Bowie's touring band. So he and Bowie parted ways before the video was actually released. So, oh, wow. Where, yeah. So he's – because at this point in 1982, MTV has been released. And so uh, people started making music videos and the music video was meant to sell – the song so by the time yeah. the video was recorded him and stevie were already done after his stint with bowie stevie went back to double trouble and in the 1982 double trouble went to los angeles to record an album and it was sent to john hammond the legendary talent scout who actually discovered uh bruce springsteen and bob dylan hammond actually signed double trouble to epic records and supervised the mixing of double trouble's first album the entire album texas flood was actually just recorded in only two days wow so the entire like again remember when we were talking about how well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that quite a bit of how quickly they were able to record and turn around albums. There was a lot less but tweaking. It, but it also seems like when they walked into Make Texas Flood, they had a clear set list and a clear vision, and they had they knew what they wanted. When it was released in 1983, it actually uh, was ranked number 38 on the big charts, and Vaughn was voted the best new talent and the best electric blues guitarist by Guitar Magazine. Wow. He's getting a name for himself. So maybe it's okay that he didn't go tour with Bowie and play Bowie's music. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I mean, and that's just maybe. Like, choices like what would have happened if he had. Yeah, because he could have gone the safe way and gone straight to the the known gig and, and the known future. But at what point would he have lost but, his own integrity and lost his own path? And would he, would he have. Well, become, and he probably wouldn't have become what we know now. Exactly. That's That's exactly what I'm saying is like. He would have had a different path completely because would he have created, oh, yeah. you know, Texas Flood wouldn't have been made if he was with Bowie. Which that would so, be, that would be horrible. Yeah. So Which it sold over. I love, uh, I love Bowie, but I would be sad if that album did not exist. Yeah. So Texas Flood uh, sold over a half a million copies. It had glowing reviews. And after years of suffering and paying his dues, Stevie Ray Vaughan was an overnight success. So uh, Vaughn and Double Trouble set off for a successful tour and quickly recorded their second album, couldn't Stand the Weather, which was released in 1984. And that album was actually more successful than Texas Flood, reaching number 31 on the charts. And by the end of 1985, the album went gold. 
Double Trouble added a keyboardist, uh, Reese Winans. Here comes a really big point in in Stevie's life was in 1985, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble actually got to perform at Carnegie Hall. And he included Dr. John and uh, his brother Jimmy on the guitar. So it was kind of this – so the moment where he could bring his brother into it because really the what I took away from it was that he always kind of tried to emulate Jimmy and kind of always tried to follow in his footsteps and then he gets this massive opportunity because who doesn't want to play Carnegie Hall? Uh, Nobody. And um, the venue actually – sold out and Vaughn was so excited and nervous that he couldn't come down until his third song. So he was hitting his peak in the nineteen eighties and then he kind of nothing succeeds like excess. Yeah. I know that's not the saying, but that's that's kind of what happens here is <laughs> he had a concert writer which required a fifth of scotch in his dressing room every night. How much is a fifth of scotch? Because I don't is that like a normal like a regular bottle? bottle. Yeah. That's a regular bottle. A regular of scotch. Bottle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he did I don't even know he did up to four that, that grams of time. cocaine a day. Jesus. I can only imagine that's a lot of cocaine. I don't know the metric system because I'm American. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say I was like, I know what the fifth is. Do you know how big how much four grams know. is? So here's how crazy his drug use is. Is that a lot? What? Is that a lot? I mean what? Four, four grams. grams? I don't know. So he did four grams of cocaine a day and to cure hangovers. Oh, God. Stevie would dissolve the cocaine in a glass of whiskey in the morning as a pick-me-up. Who needs coffee when you have cocaine mixed in your whiskey? Cheese and crackers, guys. So when it came to recording their third album, which was Soul to Soul, they, when Texas Flood was recorded and when Can't Stand the Weather was recorded, like, most of those were done within a few days. And this took weeks. To help, they, Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, it, they added their keyboard player, Reese, and although they now had something that they really didn't have before, which was time and money, they didn't have inspiration. In the special, they talked about how they would go into the recording studio and they would just sit around and they would play ping pong and there would be mounds of cocaine on their keyboards. So they'd have like their keyboard there for the session and it was just covered in cocaine. I mean, there is such a thing as being too high folks like <laughs> that's i can't and that's imagine. so much money that is so much money wasted do you have any idea how expensive recording time is and studio time it's insane and i'm i guess at that point they don't care but i mean but there there, there has to come a point where you're like i we get to this so hold on let's hold this thought for just a second okay so they the record was released in september of 1985 which it was successful, reaching number 34 in the charts, and uh, they actually got nominated for four Grammys, uh, and their their second album that they had done uh, actually won. So kind of a funky Congrats. timeline here. Kind of a funky timeline here, but like when, when Can't Stand the Weather came out, that one won four Grammys. So it's not that they don't have talent. It was just that they were lacking that inspiration that they had for the first two. and Or they were incredibly hungover. <laughs> it wasn't just Stevie either. His brother right. Jimmy would say, you know, if he was doing four grams, five was better. So when they performed at Carnegie Hall, you know, when you think of Carnegie Hall, the idea that you get is like people in these evening gowns and tuxedos. Think fancy. And you think fancy, like fancy, fancy. Like I got to wear makeup for this or pants. <laughs> like, well, we're, well, this is the 80s. I was going to say we're women. We'd have to wear dresses. If you think about it, it, because it was the 80s, there was a chance that women were there in those, like, sharp business suits with their hair slicked back, like, you know, Grace Jones and Annie Lennox were doing. My favorite. My favorite fashion trend of all time. But if you think about it, we have this image of Carnegie Hall being, like, tuxes and tails and dresses and clutches. And, you know, they said that the New York Times described it as a whistling, stomping roadhouse. So he basically tore down Carnegie Hall. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, you know, they've got they've got four Grammys to their name. They're playing Carnegie Hall, but even though they're, pre- they're the the like professional side is soaring, Vaughn is sinking into alcoholism and drug addiction. And despite his declining health, 
Vaughn kept pushing himself to the point of collapse in Germany in 1986. So Stevie on stage was looking really worn out and people would actually comment about how he looked like he was he wasn't he was looking pretty rough. In April of 1985, Stevie was invited to play the national anthem on opening day at the Houston Astrodome. You can actually find this clip on YouTube. It's so bad. It's it's almost like he's just picking one note, just like bing, 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 and it sounds awful. Oh, it no. looked like he was on the verge of collapse, and and his guitar playing had really really suffered. The crowd almost tore him to pieces. Oh, jeez. And one reporter said, I was sure he was going to be dead by the time he hit 30. I thought he already was 30 at this point. No. No, it's 85. I think he's 29. Not 85. He was just, born just, 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 Math, don't worry. A reporter said it. Who cares? Oh, he probably didn't know. All right, <laughs> never mind. And Lenny, his, his, remember at this point, he's still married. He still has a wife. But his marriage to Lenny was on the verge of collapse. The constant touring and the constant drug use and the constant alcohol use kind of wore thin on her. And so when he returned to Austin after a really long tour, he actually found his house padlocked and his wife gone. And after seven years of marriage, six and a half years of marriage, it was done. On August 27th, which is a really important date, the August 27th is a very important date, 1986, Stevie and uh, Jimmy's father died of a long-term illness and i'm assuming that was probably something like mesothelioma because he was in a bed he was an asbestos worker so i'm assuming it was something probably related and those things drag on for years so he he said goodbye to his father on august 27th 1986 and during the late night hours of september 28th one day before my birthday hey (laughs) uh vaughn became incredibly ill after a performance in i'm not even gonna attempt to say the word the name of the city what is it ludwigshafen germany ludwigshafen 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 yeah so during the late hours of september 28th vaughn became incredibly ill after a performance in germany the german towns are so hard like my my stepson lives in leipzig germany and i'm guarantee you it took me six months to figure out how to say could be schaffen i don't know i'll ask eli it's germany I'll ask it's eli. german it's german so he was suffering from near-death dehydration with along with several other issues remember he was dissolving cocaine into glasses of whiskey and <laughs> gee i wonder why he's dehydrated so but that that started eating away at the lining of the stomach correct and so on the month after his father's death, Stevie Ray hit the wall, and one night on tour, he was he stopped dead in the middle of the street and started throwing up blood. And Stevie commented, man, I need a drink. And his drummer, Chris, said, no, you don't. And Stevie replied, I know I don't, but I need one. And I think that's the point where it, where it kind of maybe hit him. It hit him. So he struggled through a couple more shows, but everybody knew that it had to end. The tour was canceled, and Stevie was admitted into a rehab facility in London in 1986. Uh, The cocaine that he was dissolving in his whiskey had ripped his stomach apart, and the the doctor told him that he was a month away from dying. Stevie said that that he was actually fine with taking it to the limit and dying, like pushing it as far as he could and just dying. And he said, I knew I couldn't keep going, but I knew I couldn't stop, and it's a hell of a place to be. Because there there comes a point in recovery – where especially like he wasn't doing heroin but but a side effect of coming off of heroin is death so you can imagine like the dependency of drugs and alcohol at this point have taken such a hold that quitting could physically kill you this is the moment where it gets really hard for us because we know these stories there are a lot of people out there that might have similar stories to stevie Mm -hmm. and if you ever feel alone please reach out to seek help find somebody find someone and but that's that's the other thing is because we we have this community here and please take take part in this community and know that you're not alone and know that me and tj are also here for you reach out to us if you need someone to talk to we will have our information at the end of the podcast but please understand that you are never alone and you never have to take this walk alone and you know, because that's just it. We may we may make a few jokes and, and quips along the way, but at the end of the day, we do know that this is a serious, serious problem that affects so many people. And 
You know, you are not alone. And there's people out there. There's resources out there. There's at the very least us. And and then there's always and, there's a way that that it's going to work for you. You're yeah. you know, it might not be a rehab facility. It might be a rehab facility. It could be a 12 step program. It could be right. the sponsorship of your there's you know, so many resources out there now. Yeah, that it, it's tough and it's scary and it's hard, but it it's achievable. You are not alone. There's and you're so not many the people. only person that's going through it right now. There are millions right. of people that are going through it. No <laughs> one's going to condemn condemn you for, for seeking help. help. Yes. Okay. But we do condone it. Yes, we do condone it. We don't condemn it. So Stevie spent two months in treatment, and he actually came out with a new plan for his life. Stevie had help getting sober from his new love, Jana Lapidus. Uh, when Stevie collapsed in Germany, she had actually flown from New Zealand to be by his side. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And so finally, Stevie filed for divorce from Lenny, moved back to Dallas, and he started the process of becoming closer to his mother literally and figuratively. Cool. So after his dad passed away, he kind of wanted to get to bonding with his mom again and, like, finding out about her life and and – Becoming a part of her life again because he had kind of distanced himself, I think, during the drugs and the alcohol and the rock and roll shows. He had kind of lost sight of his family. Vaughn was actually nervous about performing after achieving sobriety. He received positive reassurance. Uh, it was later recalled that Stevie was really worried about playing again after he got sober. He didn't know if he had anything left to offer. And once we got back on the road, he was really inspired and really motivated and the tour began on November 23rd at Townsend State University, which was Vaughn's first performance with Double Trouble after rehab. And on December 31st, uh, 1986, they played a concert at Atlanta's Fox Theater. In early 1987, Double Trouble was back on the road. Stevie was sober, and he made it a point to help other addicts on the road to recovery. And he would actually attend meetings while he was touring. And so if somebody was, That's you know, great, though. Yeah. And and I think that actually probably helped him on the road. And he had that ambition. He he had that need to continue his road to sobriety, which I think is awesome. Is he took it very very seriously. He took sobriety very important. seriously. Yeah. Well, knowing that you're a month away from death and that this <laughs> right. is the only way. There, yeah. That that could uh, that could have something to do with it. So in 1988, Stevie and Double Trouble went back on the road, and they were all clean and sober. With the help of his friend Doyle Bramhall, they wrote songs about the path to recovery, including the well-known song Tightrope, which is actually about walking that proverbial tightrope to recovery. They recorded In Step. So it was released in the summer of 1989. In Step became the best-selling Double Trouble album of all time, and it won a Grammy. And this would prove to be arguably Vaughn's most important work of his short-lived musical career as this is the album he released after recovering from his substance abuse. The album consisted of songs written on his personal and spiritual evolution uh, that earned him a Grammy. I think that there's there's probably something in that is that with Instep, he was clean and sober and honest with himself. And unlike his third album, there was a fire there. There was something there that people could connect with. And people could feel, and and I think that's the honesty that he gave to his fans is really what pushed this album to be so big. It can be incredibly cathartic to you know you you as a musician and artist you use your music as a tool to kind of help you through the worst times and celebrate the good times, you know. So it's using that to kind of bridge to to that next part of your life, you know? Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that he used that more as a as an outlet and a tool to kind of help him along that path. Yeah. Again, in his life, he's always been super close to Jimmy. And because he's always been honest with Jimmy and upfront with Jimmy, he really doubted his sobriety was going to be, was going to catch, was going to be a thing. Like he thought that Stevie would relapse. Stevie finally convinced Jimmy to actually enter into rehab and get clean himself. And so Jimmy went to rehab and he got clean and um, they decided that it was about time that they collaborated on an album together. So they went into the studio and this time they were both clean and sober and they created the album Family Style. And it's the happiest sounding album of their career. Uh, more on that album in a minute. The year before his death, Vaughn told his band and crew members about a nightmare that he had in which he was at his own funeral and saw thousands of mourners, and he felt terrified but almost peaceful. So I feel like this is – now, this is just me, 
and this is my takeaway from it, was it always seemed that, that Steve U was kind of, if not ready for death, at least okay with the idea, comfortable with the idea. At peace with it. Yeah. At, at peace with the eventuality of it. Yes. I mean, and my my personal view on death is like, I know we all have to die. Right. And I know that's eventually where we're going. I don't want to go yet, but I hope when I do, it's really fast or possibly even in my sleep. Basically, what I'm about to read you is straight from Wikipedia. This is kind of verbatim. Story time with LD. Yeah. Well, this is this is really where it gets hard because when I was watching the special, when I was reading everything about it, this is kind of where I got I got choked up. And, and I was like, well, if I just do it as clinically as possible, maybe I won't start crying. On Monday, August 27th, 1990, at 11.50 a.m., Vaughn and members of Eric Clapton's touring entourage boarded a Bell 206B helicopter at Alpine Valley Resort in East Troy, Wisconsin, to travel to Midway International Airport in Chicago. Stevie boarded the helicopter. So he so the, the Alpine Valley Festival featured Eric Clapton, Double Trouble, uh, Robert Cray, Buddy Guy, and Jimmy Vaughn. So his brother was there. And the final song was Sweet Home Chicago, and great song yeah and all all these like legendary guitarists came out and played that would have been so cool played that one song but stevie stepped out and made like the opening note and chris said when he hit the note it seemed like it was bigger than everything else wow so uh so but it was it was stevie's night so backstage after the show, the musician talked about playing together again, particularly with Eric Clapton for a series of dates at the the famous Royal Albert Hall in London in February and March 2001 uh, with a tribute to Jimi Hendrix. And uh, moments later, Clapton's tour manager, Peter Jackson, I don't think it's that Peter Jackson, said that the weather was getting bad. So this, this mist and fog kind of rolled into the valley. Vaughn's last words to his drummer, Chris Layton, were, I love you. A return flight was scheduled for later that night, but when the encore finished, you know, they, they were kind of all in a hurry to get out of there before the weather got really, really bad. Vaughn was eager to return to Chicago and made the decision to leave immediately. The designated helicopter originally had three seats available, but Vaughn ultimately ended up taking the last seat. And the helicopter crashed into a nearby uh, ski hill shortly after takeoff. Vaughn and four others were on board, pilot Jeff Brown, agent Bobby Brooks, and these are people that, that were close to Eric Clapton. Right. So Bobby Brooks, bodyguard Nigel Brown, and the tour manager Colin, uh, I don't know if it's Smithy or Smythe, so I apologize, were all killed. Uh, most fans in the area were unaware of the initial impact, but according to a catering director at the resort, she remembered hearing a boom and feeling her trailer shake. The helicopter was identified as being owned by Chicago-based company Omni Flight Helicopters, and initial, initial reports of the crash falsely claimed that Clapton had been killed in the accident. According to the uh, findings from an inquest conducted by the quarters office in Elkhorn, Vaughn suffered massive internal and skull injuries, in addition to severe trauma and rib fractures. The coroner theorized that all five victims were killed instantly, which is kind of a blessing. Yeah. Uh, given the severity of their injuries, the bodies were taken to the morgue at Lakeland Medical Center in Elkhorn, and they were kept for relatives and friends to help identify them. Both Jimmy Vaughn and Eric Clapton helped the coroners identify the bodies. Ugh. So in, in this moment, Jimmy has lost his brother. Eric has lost his friend, his tour manager, his uh, bodyguard. So Clapton. All people he's yeah, close with. Very, very close with. Uh, a subsequent investigation determined that when the, air, uh, the aircraft departed, it was operating in foggy conditions and the visibility was reported. Uh, he, they couldn't see more than two miles ahead of them, according to a local forecaster. The National Transportation Safety Board reported saying as, as the third helicopter departed, it remained in a lower altitude than the others, and the pilot turned southeasterly toward the rising terrain, and subsequently the helicopter crashed on a hill about three-fifths of a mile from the point of takeoff. Uh, that indicated the pilot was not qualified to fly the helicopter in foggy weather and conditions at night. 
Brown's Federal Aviation Administration records showed that he was qualified to fly by instruments in an airplane, but not in a helicopter. A toxicology test performed on the victims revealed that there were no traces of drugs or alcohol in their system. So Stevie was clean and sober. I mean, the whole thing is is a tragedy, but to think about how hard he worked to get that sobriety after so many years and finally kind of climbing his way out of that hole and making his way back up to the top, doing it clean and sober at this point just to have it all end in in a moment. Yeah. Um, um, so is, is um, you know, it's just for lack of for lack of a better word, it's a, it's just a devastating tragedy. No, this is a this is I mean, honestly for me this is a really sad I mean Oh L D I'm sorry. So I'm here. So Chris Layton, his bandmate, um told the story about how when he heard the news he went to Stevie's hotel room and started banging on the door and nobody answered. He kept banging and banging. Finally, he went down to security. He was like, you need to let me in this room. And so eventually security relented and opened up the door. And Chris said that he just walked in the door and he saw the bed. And it was turned down for him. And then there was just a little piece of candy on the pillow. Yeah, a pillow mint. Yeah, but that meant that he never made it back to his hotel room. And so that's so how it confirmed it, it for Layton. Yeah. Ugh. Stevie died on the same day his father had died four years earlier. Uh, he's laid to rest beside his father in Dallas. And uh, Vaughn's funeral services were held on August 31st, 1990 at Laurelin Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. His body was set in a wooden casket that quickly became adorned with bouquets of flowers, which was carried in a white hearse. And it was an estimated 3,000 mourners were in attendance at the procession. Among the attendees of the public ceremony were Jeff Healy, uh, Charlie Sexton, ZZ Top, Colin James, Stevie Wonder, Bonnie Raitt, who actually sang uh, Amazing Grace. And you can find that that clip. And it just, it tears you in half. And um, Buddy Guy was there as well. Vaughn was entombed under a grave that reads... Thank you for all the love that you pass our way. Stevie believed that death was not the end. Death was just when people changed. You can't physically see them or talk to them, but they are there. Family Style, the Vaughn Brother album, was released in September and entered the charts at number seven. Family Style began a series of posthumous releases that were as popular as the album that Vaughn had released during his lifetime. The Sky is Crying, a collection of studio outtakes compiled by Jimmy, his brother, uh, were released in October of 1991, and that entered the chart at number 10 and went platinum three months after its release. Wow. Uh, after Stevie's death, the Leighton and Shannon helped, perform, uh, helped form two semi-supergroups in Austin, Archangels, and Storyville in the 1990s, and they worked with W.C. Clark, who was originally a member of, of the band uh, Triple Threat which became Double Trouble after WC had left. Kenny Wayne Shepard and Doyle Bramhall. And in 2001, they released a new studio album as Double Trouble entitled Been a Long Time on Tone Cool Records. And uh, this album featured appearances from Doyle Bramhall, uh, Luann, who was one of his singers, Johnny Lang, Willie Nelson, Dr. John, and Jimmy Vaughn, and Reese, which was his keyboardist. The album hit number one on the U.S. Blues chart and peaked at 126 on the Billboard's 200. Double Trouble later worked as the rhythm section for uh, Jimmy D. Lane and played on most of the recent CDs. It's time, 2004, and they also played two albums by Brazilian blues guitar uh, Nuno Mendelis. I'm so sorry if I butchered that name. And and they went on tour. And in 2015, Double Trouble with Mon were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Yeah. Vaughn is ranked at number seven on Rolling Stone's list of 100 great guitarists. I'm okay with that as long as he's in the top <laughs> ten. There is some kind of justice in the world. I could agree with that. Um, and then number 12 on the 2011 list, so there is no justice in the world. <laughs> in 1981, he won the Buddy Holly Award for Double Trouble, Critics' Choice uh, Best Blues Album. He won 14 Austin Music Awards. He either won or was nominated for 14 Grammys. And I'll close out this episode 
um, with a quote. Stevie was the best friend I ever had, the best guitarist I ever heard, and the best person anyone would want to know. Buddy guy. Hmm. So that's the story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And it's weird because I, I didn't expect that story to hit me as hard as it did. But in so many places, you could see why people could fall in love with his story and why people could relate to his story. You know, he he had the the the, the alcoholism, the drug abuse. He kind of probably always he had his one. redemption story. Yeah, everybody but loves to, a good redemption. But story. his story is just so full and beautiful. And he had he in his life he felt love and he felt lost. And it, it seems like he had he was human. I mean, he had all those things, and he and he had struggles, and he had you know conflicts in his life that he overcame, and that. You know, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. He he was human. I mean, but he was always true to his art. But he, and, yeah, and and, and he made always, yeah amazing music that we have now. So so okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rock and Roll Heaven. Thanks. Um, we really appreciate it. So please make sure to subscribe, share, get the word out, so we can make more and more of these things and uh, make sure to wherever you find this podcast make sure to leave a review we will be paying attention to those things please uh you know make sure like we said to always engage with us if you're this is only episode three i know so we i'm just looking to the future if you guys feel like donating to our patreon which will help us out that'll help us get things like better audio equipment pillows for us to sit on because it hurts sitting on the floor but if you uh if you feel like giving to our patreon we're not going to argue with you on that no uh, you can find us at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on twitter at rock and roll lt the lt is like lindley and tracy uh you can find us on facebook at rock and roll heaven pod our instagram is rock and roll heaven lt and our website uh also if you donate to our patreon eventually it can help us pay for our website that does not sound for like a this. website that does doesn't have 800 extensions because it's a free website. Yep, sorry. <laughs> so it's a rock and roll heaven L dot wixsite.com backslash my site, which is rock and roll heaven L dot W I X S I T E dot com. Like we said, guys, please feel free to reach out to us and email us. Uh, you can find us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. One more time, that's rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. Any other business that we have to do? I think that's it. Again, thank you guys so much. We hope that you have a fantastic week. We hope that we brighten up your day and taught you a little something. So from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, which by all of us, I mean both of us, (laughs) two of us, two of us, all of us equals two of us. We say thank you and keep on rocking in the free world. Bye. Bye, LD. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.